As I got another rhyme, another rhythm for y'all to listen. I'm never quitting on my mission. I'ma roll with what I'm giving. Got some ambition, this new addition, filling positions. Looking at the void in myself and feeling what's missing. Better watch the way you're going. Better go in the right direction. In the moment you stressing, but you gon' be counting blessings. And I know that for certain. Keep on working, open curtains. Haters swerving, cause they ain't ready for your final version. Whoa. I'm never gon' give up, give up. Fall down, I just gotta get up, get up, you're listening to the Tom Ficklin Show on WNHHLP 103.5 FM, your home for community radio. Happy, happy Friday, New Haven. Happy Friday, Connecticut. Happy Friday to the world. And thank you uh, to 103.5 New Haven for this time. And thank you to Tom Ficklin for giving us this time. Today, I, I want to get into a conversation that I think our policymakers, our legislators, and our school leaders are not getting into. They used to conduct exit interviews to ask people why they're leaving the profession. And when they did that, they would use that data to try to improve the future. We're not asking people who are leaving our classrooms why they're leaving. So we do have a teacher shortage, and we've had a couple of shows on that, and I wanna dig, dig in depth. So today I have two exceptional former classroom teachers, dynamic in every way and well-known. And, and in reality, they were gifts to students in their classrooms. And it's almost as if I wish they would have never left over there. I'm certain the community they taught in would be saying the same. So we have Dr. Christina Christian, and she'll be here today. I'm gonna to let, she'll introduce herself in a minute. I'll ask them to introduce themselves quickly, talk a little bit about their passion and then we're going to get right on to the question that I feel our policymakers, our, our boards of education, our district leaders, and our administrators should be asking, what would make you stay in mm -hmm. teaching? And then we have Quentin Elemayu, who will be over here, future doctoral student and a friend of ours and, and former guest on the show, and he will do the same. So, Christina, could you begin just a quick introduction and, uh, and tell us about your passion? Yes, uh, Christina Christian, I am a um, 28-year veteran of special education uh, from North Carolina. I just uh, relocated to, returned to Connecticut after about 29 years and uh, was so passionate about education, public school education, working with students, specifically those with behavior disabilities, but it got to be an almost impossible task. And the stress level got to a point where it, it came down to a decision of health, mental health, obviously being part of that. And as you age, you need to start taking better care of yourself. And I knew that it wasn't possible to continue to work in that field. So I transitioned to um, a public university where I'm able to prepare special educators for the classroom. I am so grateful that we still have people who want to do it. I, I mean, I I ran because after nearly three decades, I, I was out. I, I didn't have anything left to give, but just knowing that we have people who still want to do it and they're passionate about it. They're passionate. So um, that excites me. Excellent. Excellent. Quentin, you're up, sir. Hi, everyone. I'm Quentin Alamayu. I'll be Dr. Quentin Alamayu as of December 3rd, 2022. <laughs> Yes. Yay. I'm very, very grateful for that. It's been a long journey. 
Um, prior to uh, getting my doctorate, I, I'm taking a year off right now. I'm taking a sabbatical because of the last three years specifically of education, but um, I could even say it started from the beginning. Um, I, I have taught in middle school for six out of seven of my years of teaching and enjoy the kids and enjoy um, the work. But whether it was being told at one point that if I wanted to stop being treated uh, poorly for you know my race, then I should change my last name and stop wearing dashikis. I had a white colleague at one point when I was at a high school um, introduce herself to me and talk about how, and I'm gonna use the appropriate term now, Negroes like me when she was younger and then she went into this whole conversation. And when I pushed back on the term, she told me I was trying to um, revisit history and change things. And those are the easiest ones. Oh, um, most boy. recently, and I talked about this last time, um, I was put on indefinite paid leave uh, being accused of berating some of my colleagues. Um, and luckily I just so happened because I didn't trust anyone at that point to tape the conversation that I was accused of having. And I was told before they actually heard the actual thing that I had been cursing and all of that, when in reality I hadn't. And not only that, I was crying and I was asking this person to just leave me alone so I could do my job. So long story short, for me, education has been a little bit of both. It's been the greatest thing in my life. It saved me, but it's also been one of the most heartbreaking things as well. And so I'm excited to be here today because I want to talk about the things we aren't doing well, but also talk about the ways we can right this ship because I truly believe in the power of education and democracy. And I feel like that's what's being attacked right now. So so we've got a good intro here and 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 uh we're not talking i'm not talking with teachers that that ran no 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 i'm an old golden glover and what we do is we dip we dodge we move we dodge that punch and we come around on the other side christina you didn't leave the fight you joined the fight exactly where we needed you yeah. you're jabbing you're in there winning that and so is quentin quentin uh you'll be a, probably a professor at a university yes. inspiring and lifting just like Chris Christina is in the place she's supposed to be at the exact moment. So I, I love that piece. But let me let, let's go follow the format again. And Christina, not as the professor, yeah. but as the former uh, special education teacher who worked with our students who needed the most mm -hmm. compassion, those students, what would what could North Carolina, because we'll, we'll mention she was in North Carolina for 27 years teaching over there. What could your school have done to keep you? Is there something they could have done? Or, or keep, not just you, I, what I'm really saying is all of our uh -huh. special education teachers, and we've got this, everywhere I go, my policymakers, I said, we need to attract teachers of color. Well, I have two teachers of color right here that mm -hmm. uh, you didn't do enough to keep, not to yeah. say you, but Christina, could you tell us, could there be some simple things that could have been helpful? Simple things, I think the simplest of all is to allow us to use our degrees. That's that's the simplest of all. Um, I, I often think about bankers. No one tells a banker how to do banking. No one tells the accountant how to do accounting. So you look at these careers where people go and they earn these degrees to do the job 
and they don't have to worry about people micromanaging them and giving them a completely um, a, a curriculum that does not meet the developmental needs of the children. And so the the one thing the the one thing that the district could have done many years ago. Let me just add that because I the the last two three four years the last the years uh, following COVID those were just a continuation of the same, the refusal to allow us to use our degrees, to use what we had learned in our undergraduate and graduate programs, that started where I vividly felt it. That was back in probably 2008, where I, I began to tolerate the field. And I knew that you were asking me to do things that are not developmentally sound. They go against for instance, you have us studying Piaget and Vygotsky, you have us studying Bandura in our graduate programs and undergraduate. It's a part of the program. But when we go into the school, we have someone who didn't study it telling us what to do. And so we're we're applying things that don't apply, but it's because we're having people who have probably never been in a classroom telling us what to do. And so after about... Um, <laughs> After about 12 to 15 years of providing an education that minimally met the standards that I was taught to provide, but it met all the standards that the state was required, but it met minimally met what I was taught to provide. After about 12 to 15 years, especially after the pandemic, that's when I knew it wasn't going to change. I knew it, it just wasn't. And we would never get to a place, at least not in, in, while I was still working in the field, we wouldn't get to a place where I could just be an educator and, and do what I was taught to do. So that was when I said, I, I have to go on and give someone else best practices. Um, and I have to leave the state of North Carolina to do that. And I'm hoping that I can do it in Connecticut. Not sure yet. <laughs> We're going to make sure you do it. Yes, yes, yes. Uh, so what, when, when, before I go to, to Christian, when the, in case my audience isn't familiar, Vygotsky and PLJ and those researchers that Dr. Christian mentioned, those are the key foundations yeah. of a humane learning system that, that's capable of reaching all learners mm -hmm. across all color lines, across all economic lines. It's, it's when you put the child at the center yes. of learning. Yes. And we're taught that in our classes over and over. And, and, we, and we come to value it. But mm -hmm. then to find yourself on the job, just like Quentin in the chat box said, why do you hire Superman if you tell him he can't use his cape to fly wow. in that place? You know, so Quentin, you tell us, give us some things that could keep, keep. And you know what, Quentin, tell us, you, you're like a prize. Uh, a black male social studies teacher. Yes. <laughs> oh my God! How did they we don't let you exist? Slip away? They're extinct. How did we? Yeah. How did we let you slip away? So, Quentin, share with us some ways that your district might have responded differently and maybe kept you in the classroom. No, I appreciate it. I I put three words in my mind when I was preparing for today. Um, duplicity, projection, and pruning. And let me explain those. So duplicity, 
like you were saying, in education, we send mixed messages. Like I'm told, get in the classroom, be your authentic ratchet self, make sure you connect with kids. And then I get into environments where we do things that are intentionally harmful to brown and black children. Like my job at one of my former jobs, they were making the kids walk around with this card. We called it the Ram card to be in the hallways. This was to respond to black children behavior in the hallways. And if you didn't have it on and or you couldn't produce it when you were told to, you would get an automatic detention. And if you didn't, if you already had a detention, you would then get an in-school suspension. And I had brought up well, what about the, our children that are special education? My son was in that building and he's a person with autism. If he just loses it, he's now gonna get a detention? And I was like, this sounds an awful lot like the slave patrol passes. And I was called the racist for saying that. And I was like, okay. When it comes to projection, a lot of our educators are projecting. They are literally living out their life on these kids. Yes. So yes. an example of that, I have colleagues at a former job that will purposefully plan vacations to foreign places because they knew that like the parents would pay for their kids to go on those trips. And you would start watching these adults literally almost living out their life on these kids, but in a way that was also very harmful to brown and black children if they haven't been around them. And like you said, with me being one of the few black people in the buildings a lot of times, I would notice the way that we were basically continuing and perpetuating all the traditions that led to the harm that we have in our schools. And when I would push back and say, we need to be different, stop living in your past and live for the kid today, I was called not a good team player. And so then the final one with pruning, we as educators need to start calling out these people that are harming and hurting and getting rid of them. And ironically, it ends up being the other way around. The social justice warriors, the people that are in these classes fighting for equity are the ones being pruned. I just read a story in St. Louis, because that's where I'm from, where one of our teachers, it was a male who was the Gay Straight Alliance liaison for the school. He was accused of sexual assault on a child that he didn't even teach, didn't even know, and they even had video that proved that it didn't happen because the teacher was teaching at the time. But this man for months went through being investigated and being called, whatever, and it was all as he believes because he was the leader of the Gay Straight Alliance. Yeah. And I have had that happen to me where it's like the per people that are doing the equity work are being pruned out and everybody knows that teacher in the building that is harming kids. And I don't understand how they keep getting tenure and then keep staying. It, it doesn't That's make correct. sense to me that the people like myself fear being fired and those people walk around as if they're gods. Yes. It's amazing so just listening to you. I'm sorry, Jesse. It's amazing no. as I'm listening to Quentin. I, my last year in the classroom, it, it's almost like his, the, what he's saying is triggering all of the things that I went through because I too had gotten to a place where I had to record things because the, there was this person in the building who commanded a level of respect despite not being a quality educator, but there was a lot of fear around that person. And so I became a target as well. And for me to get to year 28 and have to start recording, 
because I didn't, I, because I couldn't trust anyone around me because the, because I did work in excellence. And that's not, uh, that's not something I brag about. I thought everybody did. I thought everybody wanted to. Right. Uh, so I'm not even bragging about working in excellence, but it wasn't until I was at my last placement in North Carolina where I did, where it became clear to me that working in excellence and wanting the best for the students um, was creating problems. Yes. Um, and 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 when you when you have to begin to protect yourself and you have to begin to record conversations and record meetings, then you know it's time to to go ahead and go. Um, and that's one of the reasons Quentin and Jesse where one of the things that I'm most passionate about is getting um, black and brown parents involved because when you are in systems that are broken to this level, I mean, Quentin is talking about what or Connecticut, I'm talking about North Carolina, but it's the same story. And so yeah, when you have, St. Louis and North Carolina, I'm just saying. St. Louis, okay. With three, so with three states. Yeah, and so we're dealing with the same thing. And so when you're dealing with a system this broken and you're hearing teachers finally say, uncle, I can't take it anymore, I have to leave. That's when you have to look at parents and say, look, if you want your child to have a quality education, you can no longer wait. Um, right now, I was looking at some research that said we have um, over 163,000 uh, teachers who are not licensed to teach across the nation in, in positions where they're teaching. Well, the problem with that number, which is low, is it doesn't include California, it doesn't include New York, it doesn't include Ohio or Oregon. So you know the numbers are substantially higher. And so we have hundreds of thousands of, of teachers who are not qualified. And Jesse, you and I are working on that within, in Connecticut, where we're trying to find ways to support our teachers here at uh, Central Connecticut. Uh, we're trying to help support them, knowing that they're being put into classrooms and they have no um, experience. But then what do you tell parents? Parents, your children are suffering. At what so, point do we tell them you need to really begin to get involved intimately into your child's education and become that educator, knowing that the system is broken? It's it's broken, and I'm I'm sorry to say it so bluntly. It, it's we we commonly have come to accept the uh, Michelle Alexander's work about talking about a school to prison pipeline. When commonly people use it, quoted time and time again, look at the research. That's just the, that's the mathematical data uh, Dr. Alexander looked at to look at the percentage of, of, of black black and brown children and poor children who ended up in our prisons who left our school system. That's that's it. it it's the stuff you can't hide. It's it's the story of numbers. But I want to come back to I want to do one thing first. Uh, I did ask, um, and I'll share a couple of these things along the way. I asked my graduate teachers who are uh, giving away $6,000 worth of free tutoring this semester to wow. kids in the surrounding communities here uh, and paying to take the class. I just want to, I asked them, what would, what would make you stay? Because they've all been talking about this. Half of them probably teach in urban communities and all half of them are looking to leave those communities. And you see, they hear, they're hearing that everybody's not as abused or in a toxic situation 
if I'm in a suburban or African community, it appears the services are there, the IEPs are respected. Uh, and so they're leaving and they're getting these jobs. And I'm wondering who's left. But coming back, I asked them, what would make you stay in there? And, 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 and three of the teachers, now it's only a class of 14, but three of those teachers in those urban communities said, you know what would make me stay? Pay my student loans, because this is the second student loan I have. Every year I teach here, I'll stay because that's significantly holding back my family. If you were to make those payments, I would stay until I, I retire. Mm -hmm. uh, they said, it, I, I, love, I love the students I, I, I work with. I love, uh, uh, I, I, you know, I enjoy the families I work with. I just can't put up with the toxic stuff in there. So we got, that's one solution. Policymakers, legislators, if you listen, why don't you start paying the student loans of those urban teachers? You know, my students are on student loan number two in our graduate program. Mm -hmm. That would yep. keep them there. That's directly, that's from, what do they call it? The, from the horse's mouth. That's yep. them. The <laughs> second thing, I want to come back to what, what Christina uh, mentioned. And I want to explain something quickly. We, we, we are putting the, the social ills of society on, on our public schools. And the truth is our children spend 13% of their lives in public schools. Where do they spend the other 87% of their lives? And that is what Christine is talking about. When, could you tell us like, uh, especially when, when we're talking about uh, students with, with behavioral challenges, mm -hmm. you work with these families, you did work with them. And, and, I'm, and I'm, I'm not seeing across the board efforts to help those parents to negotiate the system. So could you give us some ideas of how to uh, help parents? And then we'll, we'll talk to Quentin after that. Uh, you know, one of the things that, that I, I firmly believe uh, we need to do in education is like demystify it. Um, while I do understand, I've been, I've been in the field long enough to understand the policies behind it. I get it. I, I understand that with every, uh, new uh, administration, every new uh, president and administration, we, we change, we shift again and again. I get that. Um, but when I say demystify, I mean, we have created uh, wording around education that has utterly confused parents. And, and, and I'll tell you, I, my husband and I both are educators. And when our children were coming up, the changes that they made to math, I couldn't even help my children in math. And I remember one day, because it was the strangest thing that they were asking, I actually went to our oldest son's teacher and I said, he doesn't understand because she told, she kept telling him that he was doing the, it was division. He was doing it incorrectly. And he came home and he was upset. And he said to me that my teacher said that I couldn't do it the way you were teaching me anymore. So I knew he was upset. I was confused because I don't know what their what newfangled method they were teaching. So I had to go to the school. And again, at this point, I'm in the doctoral program, earning a degree in special education. And my husband has master's degrees in education. He's an administrator. And we're both scratching our heads saying, but you keep wanting us to help. How do we help? And so I finally went to her and said, well, now, do you want me to come and sit in your class? So you can teach me the math so that I can teach him, or is it just enough that he understands the concept and he can do it correctly? Because I'm confused. You can't, you can't tell me, help you, and then bind my hands. Uh, 
And so when I say that, you know, one of the things that I think we, we really need to do is help parents understand the ease at which they can help their, their children. And one quick example, if you take your child into the kitchen when you know you have to cook dinner, you can pull out a can. It doesn't matter what you pull out. If you pull out a measuring cup, you can help that child understand fractions. If you pull out a recipe, even the recipe on the back of a box, you can help that child understand reading comprehension. You can help them understand how to apply this, the, the information on the back of the box to what they're doing. Do you know we? this is what we're doing in school, but we create language around it that makes it confusing. So parents don't even know that what we're teaching is cooking. What we're teaching is um, measuring a room so we can move furniture around the room. What we're teaching you to do is as simple as you can learn by playing a game of checkers. And so what I want parents to know is that there's so much you could do at home with teaching your child to wash clothes, iron clothes, help you cook dinner, um, order something off of a basic menu, little things like that. This is what we're teaching them. This is what we're teaching, but you give language around it that tell that that keeps parents from understanding how simple education really can be. And so for me, equip parents with this information, and that's half the battle. That's half the battle for us as educators. And I want to jump in if it's okay, because you said demystify, and that actually connects to a lot of my research. So when I was a master's student, I worked as a research assistant and we did a paper that we presented at CUFA, which is the College and University Faculty Assembly. That's the research part of the National Council on Social Studies. I presented in Boston and it was called Desired Epistemologies. And we talked about how when students walk into the classroom, they have understandings um, of who they are, of what they think that the social studies class should be and how it should look. So when as a teacher, if I'm teaching a skill-based social studies class, if I'm not saying memorize these 50 states and dates and whatever, that can be discombobulating to students. But I saw it worse than parents. I had a parent one time yell at me for over an hour and a half on the phone, telling me that I was not um, teaching their child social studies correctly because he had a C in my class because I was the first teacher to give him a C. I didn't give him a C, he earned it. And he earned it because he was not doing the skill. And when I was explaining to the parent like why this skill is important, she then went on a tirade about how I focusing on skills is not right, that you don't um, make up history, that lawyers don't make up arguments. And I was literally thinking, that's exactly what lawyers they do. do. They take the law and then they analyze it in a way that benefits them. But I just sat there and listened and took it for an hour and a half. And I bring that up now with the demystifying because then my doctorate, the title, and I grabbed the little thing because I was like, ooh, I can have a visual aid. But the title says, Excellence of Tyranny, How Hard Lessons Demystifies Predominant Public Pedagogy of Magic, Nail, Magic Negro Males in Education Biopics. Basically, what I looked at is, if you ask me right now, name a teacher that like in public, of an example of a good teacher that you've seen promoted in film or TV, most of us will say lean on me, right? Mm -hmm. Do you know that is the direct school to prison pipeline? Because first off, Joe Clark literally went 
from a school to prisons and became uh, a warden of, of a juvenile detention center. He also said a lot of very horrible things about brown and black people and students. But that was what I was expected to be. That's what people told me being a good male educator is. And so then I started just looking, where is our Mary Poppins? Where's our Mr. Holland's Opus? Where is any of these stories of black female or male teachers? And I started noticing that they've been magic Negro mailing us. They've been having these people who come in to serve the interest of whiteness or white supremacy test scores and then leave. But they never tell you the whole story. They never tell you that Joe Clark didn't actually bring the scores up, that he fired teachers without due process, that all the kids that he kicked out, that would have been a violation of faith. And so I found this movie on Netflix called Hard Lessons, which is about George McKenna, um, a superintendent out in Los Angeles that he's a former superintendent, but he's still on the board. And it is an amazing movie that shows working with parents and other people. And you can barely find that film. And I'm bringing that up and I use that demystify because as a black male educator, I'm always told if you get in a classroom, you're a hero. There's not that many of you. But yeah. the second I get in there, people expect black children to just naturally yeah. connect with me without understanding it takes work. Yeah. And then they get surprised when my gains are big for the school, because any gains is big when brown and black children. <laughs> But right. they don't, but they expect that these kids are going to them forever, just never have any problems with any other teachers. And it's like, no, I cultivated that relationship. I used science and art to get this kid to do this for me. And if you don't do the same things, which is honor them and respect them, yes. you're not going to get the same results. And so long story short, I just wanted to talk about that demystifying, because I think going back to epistemologies, a lot of the parents today have their view of education based on what they went through. And we as educators need to reconcile that and admit that we hurt a lot of people in the generation that I'm in, and now they're coming out for blood. And that's why they're talking about the books we use and they're talking about the teachers and the ways we teach because a lot of those people were harmed by other teachers. And I kind of need us all to have that honest conversation acknowledge that when we were worried about being a nation at risk or leaving children behind, we hurt a lot of people. You know, uh, Quentin, I'm not sure if you heard of um, Sarah Lawrence Lightfoot's The Essential Conversation, but what you're saying about the harm that, that has been done to uh, parents and how those parents are coming back. And when they revisit that classroom with their children, those, those um, she refers to them as ghosts in the classroom. Those are being triggered because parents are seeing where, to your point, we nothing has changed. We've found new ways to disguise the pain that W.E.B. Du Bois talked about decades ago. He talked about the issues that we would have when we integrated schools, but we didn't heal any we didn't address any of the real mm -hmm. issues. And he talked about the fact that when you integrate without dealing with the minds of the people, you're gonna, cre you're gonna create a different type of problem. So we've been living with that different type of problem, which to Quentin's point has created pain and hurt and scars for so many people. 
And when now, when these parents come back, what they're doing, Jesse, is they're fighting us. The, when, when Quentin talked about the tirade that the parent had, these parents, they're being, their pain, past pains are being triggered. They're targeting us mm -hmm. yes. as if we're the ones that are doing it. When in fact, again, I tell anyone, please read. It's a painful book to read. Sarah Lawrence Lightfoot, The Essential Conversation. I, I started it and I started it about four or five times and you could look at the book, you could look at all of the things that I wrote in it because it triggered so much of what not only I went through as a child, but what my sons went through and what I went endured as a public school teacher because people are in pain. And But that's not the part we want to talk about. We're not talking right. about that. And again, that's why I say to parents, I need you to begin to use those things that are natural in your environment. Use what's natural for you to equip your children because you're waiting on a system that won't even acknowledge that we're broken. Yeah, We won't even acknowledge so, it. And so if we're not gonna acknowledge it. Right. Acknowledging it, acknowledging it, acknowledging that for over 173 years since public education began, that uh, Horace Mann documented after 6,000 visits in six years across Massachusetts as Secretary of Education there, documented that what was the major issue of his times in, his, in those Massachusetts early public schools, vast inequalities yes. in that sense. Yes. So at that piece over there, but we, you know, when I'm thinking about this, two things came up. Uh, um, Quentin mentioned, we should name people. So I can name. So Mr. Stanfield, who by the way, came from North Carolina mm -hmm. up to New Jersey to teach a bunch of ghetto kids, mm -hmm. okay? And in her classroom, uh, yes, she was our English honors teacher. And in that classroom, she'd give us assignments and we'd do the traditional kind of honors assignments. But in between there, Bob Molly was playing. Uh, and then she was asking us, do you understand what redemption songs right. mean? Right. Do you understand about those old pirates that rabbi? She was telling us about Marcus Garvey and say, she's saying Bob Marley did not. That's not his quote. Those are not his words. That's Marcus Garvey's words. Uh, None but ourselves can liberate our mm. minds for, you know, from slavery. But, but so Mrs. Stanfield and the research supports if you have one black teacher, regardless of your color, your your learning outcomes are going to be improved just to let just to say that in there yes. uh so we've got research for that and that just yes. one but but let's go back to so another i want to come back to another thing my uh two things that my 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 students because i've been preparing for our show so with my undergraduates uh two of them can't do their student teaching in the fall not because they're they're, they're not ready they said because we can't afford to do it right now dr right. turner Right. Because we, we, we will have to give up our job. I don't know when I'm going to be able to do this. So that's number one. So if you want to promote, and, and I must say that those two teachers are, 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 are diverse teachers, the kind of teachers that we're supposed to be recruiting. So, but I'm just saying, they said, if, if they could find, if I could find a way to be paid, I yes. can do it. I'm working on it. So that's, that's the undergraduates. The, the, the graduate teachers gave me a new piece. So I teach the literacy courses here. And so at one of the schools, they've got a very scripted curriculum now that really is focuses on very isolated skills. And in our literacy center, 
we have an array of diverse books. I'm reading diverse yeah. books. You're reading diverse books. We're reading them to our kids. We are inspiring them with the stories of Bessie Coleman, of all great people across the board in here. Rachel Carlson, we, we, just, we just have so many books. And, and she said to me, I tried to read those books in my first grade classroom. And the instructional coach came in and said, you can't be reading those books. We need yeah. to focus on the trick words. So I'm just saying, so we, we, we also have to understand that uh, if well, we want children to read, we need to give them reasons to read. So I'm just saying, so some of the things we're asking teachers to do is almost to forget where they came from, forget right. where America came from, forget that I'm gonna tell you what, skills are important, they're necessary, I'm not denying them. You need to be able to decode, to be able to read, but you know what? You also need to be want to want to read. You need yeah. to f look for books that will inspire you. So uh, I want well, to think speak about on that real quick. Go ahead, um, go ahead, go ahead. Because here in Missouri, we have we just got the uh, the law passed that if you have books in your classroom that are not age appropriate and someone identifies one that's on one of those lists, your state funding will be taken from your schools. And I'm glad we got to this because this is one of the things like, yes, we need to acknowledge the harm that education has done in the past, but then we need to talk about what we're doing right now. Mm -hmm. And if you're telling me that in my middle school class that I couldn't possibly have, let's say the hate you give because someone else, whoever that someone is, has determined that that is not age appropriate for this kid. And if I didn't know that, or if my thought is, well, but with black children, it's giving them a, a, a foundation of who they are based on stories that are real to them would benefit them and help them with the skills. Well, if that happens in Missouri and somebody walks in and doesn't like that, they can take my district funding away and I can be arrested and charged with the misdemeanor and be, have to pay a thousand dollars in a fine. And so this is happening in real time. There are districts in Missouri that have people um, challenging the materials that they're presenting. So when you talk about those students who, yes, we need to pay loans. Yes, we need to make sure student teaching is paid. Yes, we need to, education is the only field where you are told the only way you get paid more is by getting more of the education. And then you still only get paid slightly. Like yeah. all of those things, money, Jesse, we could do a seven hour conversation about money. But if we're right. talking about once you actually get in there, if you're telling me that some person can determine that a book like mouse, is it mouse or mouse? I can't remember how to say Mama. it. Yes. That a book like that could be deemed inappropriate for middle schoolers when that's who it was written for. And then that could result in my district losing millions of dollars in funding. Now you're basically telling me that you get to decide what text I put in front of my kids. And I'm just be real with you. When I was cleaning out my classroom in an urban district, well, I'll just say it, in a black school district, I stumbled onto books and I can show you it. It said slavery defended. And it was a book that they used in a black school as recently as like a decade ago where they were arguing the defense of enslavement. And so to answer you, Jesse, like if you wanna talk about reading and stuff, I don't even know what books we can put in front of kids anymore because books like The Bluest Eye are being banned in, in Missouri as I speak, so. What you're saying, Quentin, I'm listening to you and I'm thinking back on research that I was just looking at in the Library of Congress that uh, talked about how um, 
when slavery ended and Blacks were able to be taught to read, even then there were still places that said you can't. And if you teach them, uh, you you will be, you could be jailed. You could, you're definitely gonna be fined. And it created a list of all of the things that would happen if you taught them to read. And so what I'm hearing is, okay, you can teach them to read, just don't teach them to read everything. And if you teach them to read everything, <laughs> then we're gonna do what we did back in the 1860 something where you can be jailed, you can be fired. So you see what I'm saying, W.E.B. Du Bois was right. We're, we're, we're wrestling with the same issues that we wrestled with during the time when this country was, was um, where we had the slavery. And even when it was ended, the only difference was how you went about uh, creating restrictions. And so what Quentin is talking about is a continuation of restrictions that right now teachers are finally getting tired of. Teachers are saying, you've told me what to do long enough. You won't let me use my degree, but I still have to pay for all of them. <laughs> but you won't let me use it. I'm going in debt for degrees that I can't use. And then you're allowing parents to berate me in my classroom. You're allowing parents to call the office and the superintendent's office and you take what they say and you come down harder on me. You're shackling me. You're making it harder for me to do my job. You're making it impossible for me to even appreciate the degrees that I have. And so you finally, I mean, look at how much teachers have had to endure to finally say, okay, that was it. That's it. You, you can't do any more to me. I'd rather leave the system. And so what you've heard us say, uh, Jesse, and you, you, you invited us on to speak to this issue, but these are the issues uh, that really explain why teachers are leaving. And it's not just black and brown teachers. We have plenty of white teachers out there who are, are saying the same thing. How, how can you shackle me when this is, you hired me? to enlighten our children, you hired me to educate them, to really educate them, but you won't allow me to do it. And so the, it comes down to um, not being able to do the job. Uh, just looking at some research and to your point, Jesse, nobody's asking you why you're leaving. I don't think, I don't think they wanna know anymore because to know means that you have to change, but how can you change when you won't ask us what the problem is? So you can see how the situation is going to get worse before it gets better because you stop asking us why we're leaving. And if you don't know why we're leaving, you can't begin to make the changes necessary to keep us in there. And can I add real quick about the money thing, just to support you even further? They need to be real on what the actual salary is. So like my cousin is one of those people that'll be like, all these teachers complaining about how much money they make, but when I Google it, they make it $65,000 a year on average. It's like, first off, take 17% of that away from me because that automatically goes to retirement. Take another 17% away from me because of taxes. Take another 10% away from me because of social security and Medicaid. Now add that I'm a father. And so I pay $1,200 a month for insurance out of my check before it ever hits me. And then remember that I have kids. I spend about two to $300 a month on yes. snacks for children that come to school because they don't have anything to eat. I spend $1,000 plus a year on 
technological resources on pencils when your kid comes to school with nothing. And I really need people to understand most of us are okay with knowing that we're going to be not paid a bunch of money, but we are getting upset when you don't tell people what the real numbers are. So I've put my real check online so that I even tell my students, I have students that make more money than me right now because they make $20 a month or an hour. I mean, when my wife was working at Sam's part-time, she was making $1,200 every two weeks. Yeah. My wife right now, as an educator with the master's plus 30, which means 30 extra credit hours, makes, after taxes, $1,200 every two weeks. Yep. $1,200 to take care of yep. a family. Yep. I'm trying to tell you, like, it's not about the, the money. It's also about all these ways that you're not informing the public what really affects us. And then my wife is still that teacher that buys breakout boxes and buys snacks and takes her kids and buys raisin canes because they did so well in her class. So I don't want people to think that when we talk money, we're always talking about like pay me so I could be balling. Some of us just want to be paid so we can survive. Yeah, to pay the bills, to just, uh, just to pay the bills and be able to eat too. And because I don't think to your point, I don't think people realize I'm still paying my loans back for my doctoral program. I'm still paying that. I entered the doctoral program 20 years ago, 20, but I'm still paying that because I don't get paid enough to completely pay it off. So that, and, and then our children, we wanted them to go to school. So we have our parent loans. So you're looking at us and you're thinking we're making all this money. No. And by the way, when Quentin said the average pay is the average because in North Carolina, um, I don't know how they do it in other states, but in North Carolina, it is well known that the last five years of your job, you don't get any raises. You literally stop at a certain amount and you don't get any increase unless they decide, you know, and legislation decides we're gonna give you a bonus. But as for the state, the state does not give you any extra money. That's the last five years. Imagine working for five years and not getting anything extra. You get no bonuses. And, and $65,000, I think, I, I'm still thinking about who actually gets that in North Carolina. It may be a superintendent, but teachers don't get that. Teachers don't get to that level. So I, with a doctorate degree, I got to like 50, uh, 56 with a doctorate and 28 years. Yeah, the, the, that was my salary. So we, we, we know that because uh, the media, we'll say we're just grumbling for more money. That, and I think Quentin and you have made that piece over there. My friend, uh, Dean Julian Vasquez Helic, who is the Dean of Education at the University of Kentucky. And by the way, Bravo, he is now moving to the University of Michigan to become the provost. It's a loss for the University of Kentucky, but it's a gain for his home state of Michigan. So, but he always says that when he talks to teachers, he starts when they're freshman year. As soon as the freshmen come to a campus, he runs out and meets them in some kind of setting. And he asks how many people want to be teachers. And he says the number's very small now. It's maybe four or 5%. The research says in the 70s, it was 80 to 90% uh, wanted to be teachers. And he starts reaching out to them. 
And he usually does, and I think Quentin and you have made the point. He said, how many of you are, want to be teachers because you're going to make a lot of money? Raise your hand. No hands go up. He says, how many of you want to become teachers because you, 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 it's going to be easy and you're going to have summers off? No one raises their hand. So Julian says, how many of you want to become teachers because you want to make a difference in the life of young people? Uh, and, and he says, how many of you are willing to make a difference even if it's just one? And he says, that's the mission, that's the vision to make a difference. Now, what I've heard from both you, um, Christina and Quentin today is that they are stopping the vision yeah. and the mission, stealing that from mm -hmm. our teachers and maybe that's what's leading to this mass exit of our classrooms. Mm -hmm. I never came into this profession to make more money. I'm still paying student loans back as well. <laughs> Christina, my wife is like, what the heck was that? I thought you were going to make some money. But in any way, I'm still paying them back. And, uh, you know, and I'll probably be paying them back when I retire. That's how, how crazy it is. But in, in the sense that, that we are asking people to, 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 to spend their own money. Mm -hmm. As Quinta said, to buy the pencils, buy the snacks, buy the books. I've done that. Uh, I still do that. And we're, we're doing that. We're asking them to spend their own money to supply their own classrooms. And I will say there's another element here. And the element is when Michelle Alexander talks about Jim Crow and talks about the new Jim Crow being the school. So what I'm saying is systemic racism 101. What are we doing? We, we want to those laws that Quentin talked about. Uh, we, we, what are we doing? We're trying to silence yes. books that might, I might read a book and, and Rudine Sims Bishop, who talks about mirrors, windows, and sliding doors, says the perfect of literature. You see yourself in a book and you want to read and your comprehension improves. That's why it's important for black and brown children and LGBT students to see themselves in books. Yes. But she said, you also need to look in the windows to learn about others. You also need to slide through the door to walk a mile in their shoes. And if we do this, we transform the society. So it's, it's that component. So I, I know that time, time starts going with us. So I want us to kind of give our last like two minute pieces. And I'll start with you, Christina. Uh, and really, if, maybe what we should say is, if you want us to stay, you know, that's old song, should I stay or should I go, you know, well, if we want teachers to stay, Christina, what can we do? And if we want teachers of color to stay, we want all teachers to stay, what can we do? I say this, not sure that I believe it would ever, could ever happen. But you know, since you're asking me to imagine, I will imagine. Um, if you want us to stay, then stop tying our hands. You cannot tell me to stay spend my own money, sacrifice money, sacrifice on top of sacrifice on top of sacrifice, and then bind my hands and silence me and make me nothing more than a bobblehead to preach an agenda that goes against everything that I've sacrificed. I've sacrificed time, money, energy, prayer. I've sacrificed everything to give to a child 
to your point, even if it's just one, to bring them into a society to make a difference. And you've taken and you've taken and you've taken and now you're silencing me. If you would just let me do the job, if you would untie my hands, take the tape off of my mouth, you can keep me. Powerful, powerful. Go ahead, Quentin. And I was going to jump in to say, for me, I even put it in a song that we're going to preview in a second. Um, My good friend, Barry Lane, an amazing writer, played it for teachers in Uvalde, which made my heart feel so good because teachers right now, we need love. And we need to be reminded that, yes, we are going through a lot and they are tying our hands, but there is some beauty when you see a kid really grow. So yes, it is a challenge. Yes, there are times when you're going to want to give up. But if you stay in there, if you fight, like I'm trying to get back in and I'm trying to teach other teachers, we can make a difference. So if it's cool, if we're ready, can we preview just a minute of the song? Because that's why I wrote this song. It was my love letter to teachers. So if we, we, we've come to the end of our time and we're gonna end with a song that Quentin wrote, because you know, it's like the Black Eyed Peas said, where's your love? Where's the love y'all? I see you, so stand up, let's go. I try so hard to teach them, but sometimes it's hard to reach them. But I can't give up, oh no. I gotta stay strong to teach them and give the best I have to each of them. Cause in the end, I love to see them grow. Concerns for the way that they act You'll uh-huh. never get all that you're due yeah, yeah, yeah. See, teaching Ooh. ain't for the faint of heart Then why do we value education low? Because without those very lessons, there would be no more professions. So why do we keep the educators poor? We need, the money, we need right? to keep our politics out the classroom, but allow for debate of the past too. Cause they're the next generation that will lead this very nation, and we can't have them continue all the bad too. Man, it's amazing to me when I see a kid become a stronger person than I ever did, and I just hope to be an inspiration. And carry them until they reach their graduation Life is too tough right now And they gotta survive this world somehow I got a master plan, not wait for Superman We need to hear from the teachers scattered throughout the land To teach them 
them But sometimes it's hard to reach them But I can't give up Oh no I gotta stay strong To teach them And give the best I have to each of them Cause in the end I love to see them grow Yeah, yeah